We'll hear argument first this morning in case 08-1553, Kawasaki Kissin Kaisha Limited versus Regal Beloit Corporation and the consolidated case. Mr. Ballinger. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. From its enactment in 1906 until very recently, it has been settled law for a century that the Carmack Amendment does not apply to the inland leg of an import through shipment. This Court had a factually identical are you taking a position different than the U.S. that it applies to exports but not imports? I think the, use, the Solicitor General's position is that it doesn't apply to any import or export. Is, you, is it yours I, that it doesn't apply to imports? I, I don't believe so, Your Honor. I think both of our position is that the current scope of CARMAC is consistent with its historic scope, which had a very limited special application to exports to Canada and Mexico. Other than that, it doesn't apply to foreign trade at all. Could you tell me something? Is there, do you know if there's a railroad line from the U.S. through to Can, through Mexico? I know there is one from uh, New York to Canada. There certainly are rail connections uh, between the United States and Mexico, yes, Your Honor. There are. Yes, absolutely. This Court had a factually identical import case uh, just a few years ago in Kirby, and although it did not discuss the Carmack Amendment, this Court agreed unanimously on both reasoning and a result that are flatly inconsistent with respondents' arguments here. I thought the government told us in, this, in that case that the Carmack wasn't in the case because it was either waived or something, but the, the case was considered on the basis of, on the one hand, COGSA, and on the other, the law of 50 states. That, that's correct, uh, Justice. The United States represented to this Court that that Carmack was not in the case, either because it was waived or because the traffic uh, was moving under 49 U.S.C. Section 10709, which, of course, is uh, true here as well. Uh, our view has always been that this Court wouldn't have granted certiorari purely on the basis of a waiver. Um, but in any event, uh, this Court's reasoning in Kirby uh, was that it's very important to foreign trade and to the uniformity of rules on a through shipment. Now, but uniformity is one thing when you're talking about 50 states and another one is just two federal statutes. Uh, that's absolutely true, Your Honor. But the, for more than a century, the relevant federal statutes have been construed harmoniously not to overlap in this particular situation. Foreign ocean commerce is governed by the Carriage of Goods at Sea Act, and the Carmack Amendment has always governed purely domestic traffic and exports to Canada and Mexico. Now, respondents say that the settled meaning of that statute changed dramatically in 1978. But Congress said that it didn't. And it's not really that hard to read if, the present what if, language. What if Congress was wrong? I mean, the language that they adopted sure looks quite different to me than what was applicable prior to 1978. And the boilerplate provision that, oh, when we codify this, we don't mean to change anything, I mean, which prevails, the actual language they used or that boilerplate? Well, Your Honor, I think that this Court's task, as always, is to read the statute as a whole, which includes that uh, language that Your Honor characterizes as boilerplate and also uh, includes the language that we're here to construe, and you would want to read it all together if possible. So let's look at the, at the present language. It appears at the back of Union Pacific's reply brief at page 6A. <clears throat> Just like it always has, CARMAC distinguishes between receiving carriers, delivering, delivering carriers, and connecting carriers. The simplest way to resolve this case is that I believe even respondents would concede that for CARMAC to apply, you need a receiving carrier that is a rail carrier. K-Line is the receiving carrier here, and they are not a rail carrier. Numerous decisions of this Court and the Interstate Commerce Commission confirm what the statute plainly says, which is that a rail carrier is a party providing common carrier railroad transportation. Not those, a sh are, those are two different arguments, right? Your, your rail carrier argument and your pre-1978 argument. Uh, they are, Your Honor. The simplest way to resolve this case is that the present language, even taken on its face, uh, requires a receiving carrier that is a rail carrier. K-Line is the receiving carrier here. They're not a rail carrier. This Court and the ICC have long held that merely subcontracting for common carrier service does not make you a common carrier. This Court held that in the American Railway Express case. The uh, ICC made this crystal clear in the CSX Sealand matter in 1987, where they held that the ocean carrier Sealand was not a rail carrier simply because it subcontracted for inland rail transportation and provided carrier uh, containers to the inland rail carrier. So you're so, — I'm sorry, I'm a little confused. Your position is that K-Line — you're representing whom here? 
Uh, I, my client is Union Pacific, but I'm here uh, today speaking for both of the petitioners, K-Line and Pacific. have a bit Pacific, of a yes. conflict, don't you? Because uh, isn't K-Line taking the position it's not a rail line? And who are you speaking for when you say it's — For both of us, Your Honor, because that resolves — actually resolves the case for both K-Line and Union Pacific. If it's considered what? If it's considered — K-Line, the statute requires to be triggered. It requires a receiving carrier that is a rail carrier. K-Line is the receiving carrier here, and they are not a rail carrier. So then the question becomes, Union Pacific certainly is a rail carrier. The question becomes, can you treat Union Pacific as the receiving carrier? You can't. The receiving carrier language has been in the statute since 1906. It has never changed. And for a century, it has always meant the carrier that receives the property from the shipper at the point of origin. The current language where, — Where is that defined in CARMAC? Where in the pre-1978 provisions or in the current statute is that to be read? Well, there are uh, — <clears throat> there is not an explicit definition of the term receiving carrier, Your Honor. It appears in the first sentence of 11706, where it has always appeared in the first sentence of CARMAC. And then there are implications uh, in, throughout the rest of CARMAC, I, I, which I'm happy to talk about. I'm trying to find it um, statutorily. Okay. And what case says that? Well, what, okay. What, what case of ours defines — um, a, a receiving carrier in that particular way? Well, <clears throat> we'll start with the statutory language, uh, if we may. The, the first sentence of CARMAC says that a rail carrier providing transportation or service subject to the jurisdiction of the Board under this part shall issue a receipt or bill of lading for property it receives for transportation under the, the only one who That's how in, The only one who has the Board has jurisdiction over is the railroad doesn't have jurisdiction over the ocean carrier receiving. That's, that's correct, Your Honor. Right. And the so question you, are the, you have to be the person, the railroad has to be the person receiving the goods, correct? N no, Your Honor. The receiving carrier has always been the party at the point of origin of the shipment. And you can see if you look at the venue provision in but the current language. The language. Doesn't the language say the person who receives under the jurisdiction of the board? N no, Your Honor. It's, it's two separate requirements. It's always been understood as two separate requirements. CARMAC requires that the receiving, car a receiving carrier who is subject to the jurisdiction of the board, and then it also has to be the receiving carrier. The receiving carrier is the originating carrier. If you look at the venue provision. I, I, I keep going back to what I, language tells me that particular point be, in the statute? Because otherwise the, the whole structure of the statute doesn't work. CARMAC draws a distinction between receiving carriers, delivering carriers, and connecting carriers. If receiving property directly from a, another common carrier and merely moving it for a portion of, of the journey, a connecting leg, were enough to make you a receiving carrier. And, of course, it is in common parlance. You are receiving goods in that circumstance. But this receiving That's my problem. Receiving carrier has always been a term of art uh, in the statute. If that were enough to make you a receiving carrier, then the statutory structure would fall apart because every interim carrier in the line would be a receiving carrier. Every single one of them but receives But not, not every where you're dealing with, with, with intermodal transportation, not every receiving uh, not every uh, rail carrier would be the receiving rail carrier. But, but I, I mean, this, your, your client is the first rail carrier to receive. Right? But it's not how the, that's not how the statute is worded, Justice Scalia. The, the statute is this the language? This is, is the, the see if it helps with Justice Scalia's question. The language says a rail carrier providing transportation of service subject to the jurisdiction of the STB shall issue a receipt or bill of lading for property it receives. Correct. And so that's what it has to do, is a bill of lading for property it receives. And you're saying receives means receives from the shipper. It, it, it has always it does not mean receives from another uh, carrier. It, it has always meant is that. Is that right? That is correct, Your Honor. It has always meant that. It has to mean that. Because otherwise, uh, if you read it to mean receives from another carrier, then every single connecting carrier or delivering carrier in the chain would be a receiving carrier as well as a connecting or delivering carrier and required to issue its own bill of lading, which would turn the, the historic purposes of CARMAC on its head. The purpose of CARMAC was to require the first carrier in the chain to issue a single through bill of lading to the destination that, uh, that would govern the whole voyage under uniform, consistent liability terms. No one else in the chain is supposed to issue a bill of lading. So there's only one receiving carrier. It's the first uh, carrier who deals directly with the shipper. 
If you look at the, the venue provision, you can see that the statute uses the term originating carrier interchangeably with receiving carrier. And it provides venue over that carrier only at the point of origin of the shipment. That would make absolutely no sense if someone downstream could be the receiving carrier. Uh, in, in this circumstance, you would say, uh, I suppose, that Union Pacific was the receiving carrier. I, I, I always thought that the purpose of Carmen was to ensure rail responsibility, rail carrier responsibility, so that it was one bill of lading with respect to all railroad connections. Um, if that was the purpose of CARMAC, that's not what quite correct, Your Honor. Historically, uh, this Court explained in Atlantic Coastline versus Riverside Mills and in the Ward case, the purpose of CARMAC was to require a through transportation, a through bill of lading, um, from the originating point to the destination point, a single bill of lading under consistent terms, so that the shipper does not have to prove where damage occurred. The point of, of CARMAC. But on the rail line. On, 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 any, rail, on, on rail transportation. On any transportation, actually, Your Honor, the, the way that the, the statute works, it can. Historically, uh, you say that? Yes, Your Honor. In the pre-1978 CARMAC, there is a, if you want to take a look at it. Sure. Um, it is in uh, page 99A of your petition. It reads, if the loss, damage, or injury occurs while the property is in the custody of a carrier by water, that liability, the liability of such carrier shall be determined by the bill of lading of the carrier by water and by and under the laws applicable to transportation by water. Yes, Your Honor. So that, that provision was introduced in the Transportation Act of 1920. It's talking about domestic water carriers, and it's still there in the statute. It's just in the, the uh, CARMAC provision, when Congress split CARMAC into three in 1995, it moved that provision to 14706C2. Uh, and so explain to me what happens in domestic water cases. It says that you can have a different bill of lading for the water transport. That bill of lading controls your damage on the water, and it separates that out from damage on the rail side? In, in domestic, Congress drew a distinction between foreign and domestic commerce for a very long time, Your Honor. In domestic commerce, the rule has been that a, a rail carrier could interconnect with a domestic water carrier, and the domestic ca water carrier could carry it for a leg of the trip. And the whole trip would still be governed by the CARMAC through bill of lading. But if there was damage during the water portion, it would be governed by the water law, which is the hard And the way. railroad is covered by any damage that occurs on land? The, the, rail, the railroad is liable uh, on a through transportation basis for the entire trip, but if the damage occurred during the water leg, its liability is limited and confined by the, the uh, law that governs the So water. there already is, domestically, two different forms of liability protection. Congress made that compromise because Congress was, was forced to choose between not having three bills of lading at all uh, domestically or making or essentially repealing the Harder Act in circumstances where uh, rail carriers interacted with them, Congress made the choice to compromise and have kind of a hybrid arrangement. But in foreign trade, the geographic scope of CARMAC was always confined. That CARMAC did not apply to imports at all, and it did not apply to exports except for exports to adjacent foreign countries. Prior, prior to 1978, if I think you lose on that question under the law as happens to be currently codified, but would prevail under, under the pre-1978 law. What is, what is your strongest case for the proposition that what I referred to earlier as the boilerplate language trumps the plain language of the currently codified version? Your Honor, we don't think that this Court has ever interpreted uh, language of that nature, but in a, a different context with a, a much weaker statutory um, language, the Forco Glass line of cases, mm -hmm. this Court applies a strong thumb on the scale that Congress didn't uh, intend to change the law. It's, it's kind of a, a difficult, I mean, if you're a shipper and you're trying to figure out, okay, let's ship some goods, and you pick up the law and says, well, this is what the law says, who, who's going to tell you that, well, you may think that's what the law says, but you're really governed by the pre-1978 law? <clears throat> well, Your Honor, we don't, we don't think that it's, it is necessary 
for this Court to uh, read the, the statute in a, a countertextual way. You just have to do what this Court has always done uh, and read the statute as a whole, including giving some weight to that provision, which is in the text of the statute, uh, and reading the rest of the statute in light of it. And I think if, if you do that, particularly in this case, it's really not that hard to reconcile the pre-1978 law with uh, the current law. Union Pacific can't be a receiving carrier because it didn't receive the goods at the point of, of origin. K-Line isn't a rail carrier. That's enough to resolve this case, and this Court doesn't need to go any farther. Actually, that would, uh, as a practical matter, mostly resolve the commercial problem uh, that this Court granted certiorari to I, I have resolve. one question. I, I know that it's, uh, your white light is on. Uh, can, can I assume that whether we rule for petitioners or respondents in this case, the shipping world, the cargo world, will immediately adjust to our decision. It's not going to be a problem. Uh, there are insurers, there are freight forwarders, there are form contracts. People will know exactly what to do. They, 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 they will adjust in one week to what we do. Am I right about that? Or uh, can you say that if we adopt uh, the respondent's position that will be disruptive to the shipping trade and so forth. Not exactly, Your Honor, because, of course, respondent's position is that CARMAC is a mandatory uh, regime. There's no way to contract around it uh, if it applies. So uh, respondent's position is that CARMAC mandatorily must govern the inland leg of any of these through shipments. The practical consequence of that is that true through bills of lading, unity of responsibility in one shipper under consistent terms for the entire voyage will become impossible in foreign trade. Uh, so there, there won't be a way to correct that. Thank you, Mr. Ballinger. Mr. Yang. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to address a few of the questions that have come up already. Uh, Justice Sotomayor, you asked what Supreme Court decision addresses the receiving carrier. There's a series of decisions which address receiving carriers and the nature of the receiving carrier as the initial carrier that receives goods from the uh, shipper. I would, uh, Mexican Light and Power Company, 1947, is probably the best, but that traces its way back all the way to the 19-teens. Galveston Wharf Company, Ward, Starbird, Blish Milling, Riverside Mills. These cases are largely cited in our brief at page 27 to 28 and footnote 10. Um, regarding the geographic scope of CARMAC on the current text, we believe that the current text, which is reproduced uh, in the petition appendix at 69A, um, it, if you look at the combination of both the first and the third sentences of CARMAC, we believe that that reproduces the historic scope uh, as encompassing only domestic transportation, purely domestic transportation, and transportation to an adjacent foreign country when it's an export. Uh, the first sentence requires that the rail carrier be providing transportation or, or service subject to the ju jurisdiction of the board and issue a receipt or bill of lading. The very purpose of Car CARMAC from the very beginning, its core purpose was to allow a shipper to sue the initial carrier. The initial carrier was responsible for the entire shipment all the connecting carriers were deemed to be agents of the initial carrier, and therefore there was an easy uh, a defendant for the shipper who dealt directly with that shipper and uh, that carrier and received a bill of lading from that carrier to sue. I, I, read, I read your brief like uh, your friends is relying uh, almost exclusively on the pre-1978 language. Our brief addressed the first sentence briefly, and I believe the prior page, page 20 to 21, deals with the first sentence, and then 22 is the third. But uh, our point is, is that the first sentence sets an anchor in the United States as the, originate, uh, as the origin of the shipment. Um, part A, jurisdiction, this is reproduced at page 62A of, of the petition appendix. It does cover shipments that themselves transit the United States and foreign countries. Excuse me, what, what are you referring to now? 62A of the petition appendix. This is uh, section 10501, which defines Part A jurisdiction of the STB. And then I'm looking specifically. The Union Pacific petition appendix. Oh, they're both, the, both of them are actually the same. Both of the petition appendices are the same. Um, so I'm looking down at A2, provides that the jurisdiction of the STB applies only to transportation in the United States when that's between, you know, part of a larger transit between the U.S. and a foreign country or, or even purely domestically. So 
a, sh a shipper or a carrier that is subject to STB jurisdiction has to be providing this U.S. transportation when it issues the bill of lading. So, central, again, the central purpose was to provide a uh, carrier by which uh, — against whom the shipper can bring suit in a convenient form, the person that the shipper dealt with. And that's now reflected in um, Section uh, the, the forum provision of CARMAC, which is subsection D2, it provides that a, a suit under CARMAC may only be brought against the originating rail carrier in the judicial district in which the point of origin is located. Those and, and the prior provision says that that's a U.S. district court or a state court. CARMAC itself anchors the transportation as starting in the United States. And then the third sentence explains the remainder of the historic scope. The third sentence. We're looking where now? Uh, this is uh, back to 69A. It's CARMAC. Third sentence in sub, uh, subsection B. It defines the liability under CARMAC. It says the liability under this section is for damage or in, uh, caused by the receiving carrier, the delivering carrier, or another rail carrier over whose line or route the property is transited in the United States or from a place in the United States to a place in an adjacent foreign country. So what that does is that provides the center for the two bookends. The first bookend is the originating carrier, the receiving carrier that receives the goods in the United States, provides the bill of lading to the shipper. The second bookend is the delivering carrier. And in between, remember CARMAC was intended to cover the entire carriage as a unified whole. The in-between is transportation in the United States, or transport, export transportation from the United States to a point in a foreign country. We believe that that text, um, read as a whole, reflects the historic scope of CARMAC that's existed since 1915 when it was extended beyond purely domestic transportation. Why, why doesn't uh, 2, A2, the delivering rail carrier, if what you say is true, that should be uh, uh, the delivering rail carrier delivering in a an adjacent foreign country. Correct. That, that limitation is, is strangely missing. From well, we believe the, the, the portion of A3, which now looks like it's in A3, uh, the over whose line or route the property is transported, actually applies to the receiving and delivering rail carrier. If you would turn to page 5A and 6A of the reply brief of Union Pacific, there's a side-by-side -side comparison. Okay, wait a minute now. I'm sorry to have paragraphing. You say is wrong. <laughs> the uh, from 5A to 6A, you'll see 5A is the 1978 version of CARMAC that was um, enacted in the 1978 codification. Right. The current version is reflected on the, the, the facing page. There was no paragraph indentation in 1978, and in 1995, when Congress changed the text, it did include a paragraph indentation. But the committee report. The conference report is very clear that CARMAC was not changed. Also, so all you, you're saying that I think what you're saying is that all we have to use the statutory statement that nothing was meant to be changed for is to say, well, that paragraphing in three is just wrong, right? I don't know. The, you mean the indentation? The indentation. The indentation was inadvertent, and I would actually d direct the court to page. 73A, which is the other part of CARMAC that it now exists for uh, um, motor transportation and freight forwarders, um, there is no indentation. The current version of the other half of CARMAC does not provide the indentation. The indentation was inadvertent. And in 95, the 95 Act, which eliminated. I'm, I'm, I'm losing you. 73A? 73A. Yeah. A1 reproduces what we were just looking for. Uh, looking at in the rail carrier. Another carrier. It's a single paragraph. That's the way it's existed since, you know, 1915, basically, or, or, or 1927 when they added receiving carriers. So what the Court can do, it, it's true. CARMAC is less clear than it used to be. It was made a, uh, somewhat less clear in 78 and, and in 95. But we believe that when you take the text as a whole, particularly when read in light of con the context of this Court's decision and the longstanding practice in the United States reflected in the STB, or STB's decisions, that is the ICC's decisions, its predecessor, um, 
that at least the provision is ambiguous. And if the provision is ambiguous, Section 3A, the mandate that the statute should not be construed to make a substantive change in the law should control. This may not have anything to do with anything. Is there a reason the STB doesn't appear, appear on your brief? Uh, the STB does not appear on our brief. It did in the Kirby case just a few years ago. It, it did. It did. Um, the STB does, has not taken a position about the current scope of CARMAC and therefore decided not to join our brief. Is, is there a way to uh, — are you finished? Uh, no, I would say, though, that the ICC's decisions remain binding. This is 1995, the statute ICTA, Section 204A, which is a note now to Section 701 of Title 49 specifically provided that the ICC's orders and determinations would remain binding unless changed by the STB. The STB just did not, at this point, come on record and take a position about the scope of CARMAC. Uh, we don't even get into this problem if, unless the ship line is a rail carrier. In part. There's, if you just well, it says a rail carrier providing transportation or service subject to the STB should issue a receipt or a bill of lading. That's what leads us into the That problem. would take care of the um, initial carrier, what we believe is the initial receiving carrier in the case, um, K-Line. However, I believe the argument is being made that CARMAC could suddenly apply mid-carriage but at the bit, border. Mid-carriage, it, it only talks about that. We, they use that word receipt. It, it, that, that's why I thought possibly it didn't, because it says uh, — I believe the argument is that the first carrier who receives property in the United States would be deemed the receiver. That's a separate argument. That's Did a separate argument, but you would have that to, argument? You would have — excuse me? Did the Ninth Circuit pass on that argument? It did not. It did not. It so did not. that's not right in front of us. That is correct. Quite different. It is a different — but we think it's clearly wrong in light of Carmack's historic purpose — this would be to divide the, the — if that were correct, it would divide the transportation in two. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Mr. Frederick. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. It does not take great mental gymnastics to read the plain language of this statute and resolve it the way the Ninth Circuit did in favor of respondents. The case is controlled by the plain language of several federal statutes, and they have been adverted to to some extent, but I would like to point out to the Court that in two and a half pages of our merits brief, starting at page 26 and going over to page 28, we not only cite the full language in full of the Carmack Amendment and the jurisdictional provision of the STB, but explain how Union Pacific is a delivering carrier within the meaning of the Carmack Amendment under the plain terms of the statute. They are liable for the loss. The Carmack Amendment applies to their receipt of the property and the train derailment, which was caused by their negligence, comes within the plain terms of the Carmack Amendment. Oh, that under that view, I guess, that, that any intermodal transport, China, all the goods covering from China, uh, which tend to move under a single bill of lading, as soon as they get to the United States and go on a train for 50 miles, a new bill of lading must issue. No. In fact, this Carmack Amendment — explicitly says, quote, failure to issue a receipt or bill of lading does not affect the liability of a rail carrier. Congress, all right, so you're saying they don't have to issue They do not have to issue a, now, a separate if they don't have to issue a separate receipt, what we're talking about is the bill of lading that was issued by the ship. That's correct. All right. Now, if that's correct, and if the ship, the only one that has to do that, it says, is a rail carrier, and a rail carrier is a person providing common carrier rail transport. And then that's defined to include intermodal equipment used by or in connection with a railroad. And my understanding, which I'm asking you for correction if I don't, is that the argument here is the ship is providing intermodal equipment used by or in connection with a railroad. That's correct. It's the words used by or in connection with that I'm focusing on. Because to apply those words here seems to me 
to bring every international shipment in the world, no matter how small the American portion by rail, and no matter how big the foreign part of this transport, it brings it all within CARMAC, and it means that the bill of ladings issued by people throughout the world are all going to have to apply uh, to uh, meet the terms of the CARMAC amendment, which had to be purposes railroads in the United States, and uh, that's going to be a nightmare. No, it won't, Justice Breyer. Now, but first, is it true what I said? Um, and second, if it is true, why isn't it way contrary to the purpose and a nightmare? It is not. It is true and not true, but for different reasons. And if I could take a moment to explain, because I think it is important. In 1978, the plain language of the statute defined what the STB's jurisdiction is. They do not dispute that the last part of the jurisdictional provision gives the STB jurisdiction when a, a shipment is in, quote, the, you know, between the United States and a place in a foreign country. But the STB only has jurisdiction to the extent the transportation occurs in the United States. So it is true that imports into the United States are covered by the Carmack Amendment, but only to the extent of the transportation being within the United no, States. No, but why don't they have to issue a bill of lading? That's what they say. So every company, the Finnish company, Chinese, every company, every ship owner, even if he's never been to the United States, sad for him, but nonetheless, uh, uh, every one of those is going to have to issue a bill of lading Whatever meeting, whatever requirements are there, and we know at least one requirement you think applies. Let me go back, let me go back to the international point, Justice Breyer, because the railroads argued against an international uniform rule that would apply both to ocean carriage and inland carriage in the Rotterdam rules. And they made the representation to the international community, you don't need to have a uniform rule that applies to both ocean carriage and inland carriage because we have this thing called the Carmack Amendment. And they made the representation that the Carmack Amendment would apply to imports as this Court in the Woodbury case, written by Justice Brandeis, decided in 1920 and a month earlier. What are you arguing? Estoppel? No, I'm arguing that their position is inconsistent with the representations and therefore the plain language Which of the Which one is right? That's what we're concerned about. Which I'm one is right? Their earlier position their, or their earlier, position? their earlier position was correct under the plain language of the Speak to that rather than the fact that they had an earlier position. The plain language, Justice Scalia, as it is currently in force, I think disposes of the case without Excuse any me, real argument. Go back to Justice Breyer's question. Yes. Um, and perhaps, as I understand this, we're, I think we're all forgetting that none of these liability provisions come into play until there is proof that an incident has occurred somewhere, either on a railroad or on the ocean, correct? Correct. And so the issue becomes which set of rules governs that particular incident. Correct. Where it happens. Correct. I think Justice Breyer asked you why it made sense that um, there would be two rules in effect for what happens on the ocean and what happens on land. And if we had it, wouldn't it create great difficulty? I think he yeah. may correct your point was if the that's how the whole world's difficulty why were the railroads in favor of it before correct and that's how the that's how europe operates europe has separate conventions for rail and road that apply to damage that occur on land and the european nations have acceded to the various versions of hague rules in here that says on land anything in carmack that says on land well it's trans in other words if it's in a ferry boat I mean, remember, we have a very broad definition of rail, where rail includes all things that have nothing to do with rail. But it and, is. and so now we got that broad definition, and I would have thought we trace through what has to be in the receipt, and then we get to the, that section and where it's exempt, because they got want to get rid of it, then you have to put in the, you have to put in a certain kind of uh, uh, waiver, which is very hard to achieve. And, and that, that's my understanding of it's it. It's the Surface Transportation Board, Justice Breyer, that yeah. has the jurisdiction here. Yeah, but they can't get rid of 
the thing you like. No, they can't. They can't. And I want to get to Justice Kennedy's question. They can't. These are background rules that we're talking about, and they will be contracted around. After the SOMPO decision was decided in the Second Circuit, Union Pacific went right out and changed the contracts that they have with ocean carriers to ensure that the ocean carriers would indemnify them if they were liable and did not get the full benefits of contractual extensions. What we're talking about here is whether there's an American forum for American cargo interests for an American train that is derailed in the United States. That's what we're talking about. part of your argument, you don't rely heavily on your plain language argument when it comes to deciding that these huge ocean vessels are rail carriers. Let me go to that point now, just, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. The Port of Long Beach is situated more than 20 miles from Los Angeles, and the port has 60 miles of train track with intermodal, multimodal facilities that get the cargo containers, which K-Line owns, on chassis that K-Line owns, and they have to get from the Port of Long Beach 20 miles away to the Los Angeles train depot where Union Pacific picks them up. Now, under K-Line's theory of the case, they get to have a donut hole in the Carmack uh, Amendment liability provision for that 20-mile transport. We would submit as a factual matter, which, of course, would need to be done on remand, that there are facts that can be adduced to establish the functionality test, which the ICC has long administered, to look at the functions being performed as well as — So that's a little bit different from your argument that they are a rail carrier because their bill of lading would cover the train ride to Chicago. We didn't make that argument. Our argument was that based on the functions and them holding themselves out to be a rail carrier, which they have done, they qualify under the normal ICC method of if it weren't, rail If it weren't for the, for the trek from Long Beach to Los Angeles, you would say then they're not a rail carrier. The argument is the ICC is defined. It also looks at things like the multimodal facilities, like the containers, and and the holding themselves out as a rail carrier in their advertising. Those are important parts of the functionality test. Well, how, how does the Chief Justice's hypothetical work with the language of the statute? <clears throat> it, it just goes to Los Angeles, and it, there's a railroad track right by the uh, by the wharf, and it's the Union Pacific Railroad. Well, there, there are two ways to read the text and resolve the case. One is to say K-Line is the receiving rail carrier when it transfers from the International Ocean Carriage Corporation to the American uh, multimodal transportation operation and gets the goods from the Port of Long Beach up to Los Angeles and then treat UP, Union Pacific, as the delivering rail carrier under the statute. UP is not required, uh, although the first part says, you know, you are supposed to issue a bill of lading, their liability for the train derailment does not turn on whether they issued a bill of lading is your or not. Case, does your case end if we hold that K-Line is not a railroad carrier? No. K-Line gets out of the case. We would have to go to Tokyo to pursue K-Line under the bill of lading, but we could continue our suit against Union Pacific as a delivering rail carrier under the Carmack Amendment. As a delivering carrier? Correct. Well, unless we hold, as your friends argue on the other side, that they can opt out under 10709. Well, you do would need to reach the question of whether or not exempt carriage under 10502 takes away the option of a 10709 contract. And that's a different question with respect to liability and claims and with respect to venue. Correct. And let me address that, if I might. Could I just just break before you answer the chair, the justice, the chief? Um, In what capacity? K-Line is the contracting partner with Union um, Pacific. Under what contract did the shipper sue Union Pacific. Under if the if K-Line is the, is the shipper. Directly under the Carmack Amendment. And in fact, when Union Pacific removed this case from state court to federal court, the federal question was they said there's a Carmack Amendment claim being asserted against us. That's how we get from state court to federal court. And when they trans- when they sought to transfer the case from, uh, California to New York, they did so on the basis of the convenience of 28 of the 32 witnesses to their train derailment being American citizens. So it's not like there needs to be some special 
There's a special cause of action within the Carmack Amendment, Justice Sotomayor, that provides a means of redress for damaged cargo interests to go directly against the railroad. Regardless Perhaps. of whether the shipment was by them directly or not? Correct. Perhaps. If they cause the damage, that's the whole point of the Carmack Amendment. Maybe now you could respond to my question about the distinction under 10502 between claims and liability and venue? Yes. The STB, in an authoritative determination that is entitled to our deference, has said that when it issues an exemption for certain categories of rail carriage, which it has done with the multimodal shipments, those exemptions remove the possibility of a 10709 contract carriage. And the reason for that is that in both situations, the rail carrier has to provide an opportunity for CARMAC compliant terms to be given to the shipper. If it's exempt cargo carriage under 10502, 10502E says that the carrier must provide CARMAC compliant terms in order to take advantage of the exemption and contract under the exemption. 10709 provides contract carriage, but only if the rail carrier provides common carrier tariffs that a cargo interest could ship under. Here, because the um, transportation is exempt under 105, 10205, there is no common carrier tariff that is applicable, and that's why the STB has said if there's no common carrier tariff applicable under uh, 11101, then there cannot be an opportunity for contract carriage. To do otherwise would be to make the statute a complete deregulation statute. Well, but it's a little, I mean, the, I'm looking at page 64A of the petition appendix, where they're saying you can't exempt uh, through co- contractual terms for liability and claims. Venue is treated elsewhere separately from liability and claims. So again, under, you're the plain, plain language team, and, and it, that seems fairly plain that venue is not covered. No, well, liability, Your Honor, is where you can bring your suit in what your well, suit. No, liability is not where you can bring your suit. Liability is liability. Venue is where you can bring your suit. The, the way the Board has construed this in the letter brief that they filed in the, ST, in the Second Circuit, which is entitled to our deference, says the Ninth Circuit in Regal Beloit got it right with respect to the interplay between 10502, 10709, and, um, and contract carriage. You say we have to defer to a letter no. brief in another case? I think most of my colleagues would not defer to a letter brief in this case. And, and, and you're saying that we, we owe deference to a letter brief in another case? Uh, that is what this court held, Meade, which I didn't agree with. Uh, it seems to me, uh, Meade did not overrule our, and in our, the court, this court gave deference to a brief by uh, the federal government that was a setting forth the authoritative. In, in another case, in in that case, in that case. But I don't. Do we have a brief It's here? a distinction without a difference because here the Second Circuit invited the views of the STB to tell us what do you think is the interplay between these various provisions. And the STB gave an authoritative um, uh, view to the Second Circuit so that it could resolve a case in which the STB was not a party. There are two things here I don't understand. I'm just trying to get clear. In in the first part, uh, 706A, it talks about the definition of rail carrier, 1026, I guess. It says railroad includes railroad transport will include intermodal connect intermodal equipment transport used in connection with a railroad. What is intermodal equipment? Those are the chassis. They are the containers that are used okay. to take so, so now, if we read it literally, to go back to my — I'm trying to produce a, the worst example that frightens me the most. Uh, there's three miles of railroad transport in the United States, but it carries — the chassis, or it carries that big box, which has come all over the world, from all over the world. And if we read this with no limitation, this definition makes the ships that carried it from other places railroads. And once that's railroad transportation, we're into CARMAC. And now, if STB exempts it, what happens 
is the provision comes into play that says you can't exempt an exempt carrier, in effect, from the liability provisions. And it means the ships that had to issue the bill of lading now have to allow the kinds of suits. Now, here is the point I'm not certain about. I would think against them, not just against a railroad carrier, and perhaps against them for anything that happens even on the ocean, and not just the railroad carrier for something that happens within the United States. No. Now, explain to me, what is it that gets us out of that? There, the COGSA applies tackle to tackle. If the damage is occurring on a ship, yes. the STB has no jurisdiction over that. CARMAC does not apply. It is only once the ship — Where does it say that? Because I better read that one. Well, COGSA itself, which is set out in the um, — Yeah, yeah. Where? where? You, know, can you, you know offhand where it says that, just so I, I — Yes, I can give — the provision of COGSA that you are looking for is the definition of carriage, which is set forth in Good. Uh, page 48A of the petition appendix, and it is uh, 1E. The term carriage of goods covers the period from the time when the goods are loaded onto the time when they are discharged from the ship. And as the court in Kirby said — Well, that's COGSA. That's not CARMAC. Right. So what gets us out of CARMAC? CARMAC only applies if it is carriage and transportation within the STB's jurisdiction. The STB has no jurisdiction over COGSA carriers. That's the Federal Maritime Commission. Then why are we suing uh, — why are we suing uh, — uh, why does — why does the ship being sued here? The ship is performing two different functions, Justice Breyer. It is performing an ocean carriage function, and then once it's on land, and there are thousands of K-line containers all over the United States right now where K-line is performing services, motor carriage and rail carriage services here in the United States. Is that because they have contracted for them? They own them. They, well, they don't own Union Pacific's rail line. No, they own the containers that Union Pacific is pulling. So if I, if I own a container being pulled by somebody else's train, I'm in the train business? Under the definition of functionality where that is part of how the STB regulates. And to say otherwise, Mr. Chief Justice, would be to deny the federal government the regulatory authority over containers that come into this country representing approximately 80 percent No, it, wouldn't, it, would just, it may just mean that they don't have the regulatory authority because that container is a rail carrier. Well, it's carrying it is the rail carrier. It's a container. But they — well, at one level, Mr. Chief Justice, it's, it's sort of academic because the STB exempted from Part A, which is, includes the Carmack Amendment, those uh, containers, and it did so in an exemption order, which we've cited in our, in our brief. So at some level, there's an academic quality it, it, to this I, colloquy. I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a little bit confused now, back to being confused. You're suggesting that from the landing, it's an ocean carrier, and the minute that the containers are unloaded from the vessel and put on land, it becomes a railroad carrier, even though its delivery contract may have ended at that point? No. If its delivery contract ended at that point, it did not hold itself right. out as so a rail what carrier? About, what is it that you're arguing makes them a railroad carrier once they put it there, let's assume the reverse of the hypothetical that you um, that you posited. They deliver to the dock, and Union Pacific is the one that owns those three to six miles of connection to its main railroad. It's the one who's going to provide the motor carriage. It's the one who's going to take it from the the uh, the dock and bring it in. And can I just add to the hypothetical the fact, which is an important fact, did the ocean carrier hold itself out to the public as a rail carrier in making the contract with the original shipper? Because that is an important fact that does not help us resolve your particular hypothetical, uh, Justice Sotomayor. If, if UP is picking up the goods with its equipment, the ocean carrier is not a rail carrier under our theory of the case. There has to be functions being performed that are multimodal functions, and the ocean carrier has so to So it's not merely that it has possession of a container that it's dropped somewhere. It has to transport it in some way in relationship to the railroad. I think that's the best way to understand the statute. Right. Can we go back one more second? Can you just give me the citation in CARMAC? 
not COGSA, but CARMAC, that would get our intermodal shipment out of the Board's jurisdiction, because what I'm thinking about is the intermodal shipment and the boat sinks near Hawaii. Okay? Now, on your reading of CARMAC, not COGSA, what gets that shipment sunk in Hawaii or Midway or Guam or someplace, what gets them out of CARMAC? Well, Which words? On 62A, a yep. position appendix defines the general jurisdiction. Yeah, and it includes uh, it, uh, transport, just as you define it, between the United States and another place, uh, 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 United States and a place in a foreign country. Yeah. So that's what this is. This is a shipment between Shanghai and San Francisco. Okay. Or and A2, will you look at A2, please? A2, A2 says A2. jurisdiction A2. under paragraph 1 applies only to transportation in the United States. Oh, sorry. Between a place in. Oh, transportation in, in the, the United, United States. States. Between a place in. Exactly. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Now, it is not true that the law was settled prior to 1978. The Woodbury case applied the Carmack Amendment to imports. The United Union Pacific versus Burke applied it to imports. And um, in those cases, this Court made the determination that the words from and to were also meaning between. Um, and uh, Congress, when it cleaned up the statute in 1978 and provide words that are very easy to understand now, was — um, not uh, changing what had been a well-settled practice of goods that were getting — arriving at a port in the United States and then being transported by land means. And it's important to understand the context in which this arose, because I think our fundamental disagreement with the Solicitor General's presentation is that it ignores the container revolution that was occurring between the late 1950s and the 70s when this uh, — Act was codified and cleaned up. And in that container revolution, prior to the time when containers were used for multimodal transportation, it was common for goods to be repackaged at ports in the United States. They were taken off ships, they were repackaged, put onto trains or trucks, and that required a separate contractual arrangement. Now, this Court and Woodbury and Burke had said it's not so important whether or not there is a separate contract so long as the function and the intent is clear that it is being moved by rail or road in the United States. The Carmack Amendment will apply. Justice Sotomayor, you're completely correct that the purpose of the Carmack Amendment was to hold railroads and motor carriers responsible for the liabilities caused by their loss. But when Congress then cleaned that up and put in Section 3, it was not intending to obviate the clear and unambiguous language of the statute. It was simply providing, you know, some uh, uh, boilerplate that I think is, is very difficult to cause the Court to override the plain language of the statute today. And in 1995, when Congress eliminated and terminated the ICC and enacted the ICC Termination Act, it reenacted that language. It did not encompass Section 3 at that time, so the statute as it presently exists does not have a statutory pointer as to how you are to interpret the language. And under the normal canons that this Court has instructed for courts in the bar, the easiest way to practice law in this area is to look at the statute, see what it says, and not have to go back not just through the last iteration of the statute, but the one before that, and not just to be able to look at what was in the U.S. Code, but to have to go back to the statutes at large to see what other sta uh, statutory provisions Congress had put into the statute. That would make the practice of law extremely difficult. Can I ask you a question about, about whether, uh, whether the shipper becomes a rail carrier? Suppose it's not three to five miles. Suppose they uh, — Suppose the uh, American rail carrier is waiting right at the foot of the wharf. But all these wharfs have rails that go out to the ship, okay? And let's assume that that's owned by the, by the shipping company. And a crane takes the, the, the uh, uh, goods off of the ship, puts it on a, on a car that rides along those rails for a couple of hundred yards. 
Is that enough to make the, uh, the shipper uh, I would, railroad? I would concede the point of interchange at the port, Justice Scalia. I don't think it's necessary for the Court to reach that. I will concede that point so long as, um, you know, we're talking about an immediate nexus between the vessel and the ship, and, and that is not a, not a point that we have to prevail on to win in this case. And, and you say here they, they own rail lines that uh, there are 60 go for well, there was no discovery because this was decided on the pleadings as a matter of law. We believe that once discovery is permitted, if you allow the case to go back for factual development, that the facts would reveal that K-Line was engaging in significant rail operations that at least get us beyond uh, the, into the realm of, of legitimate advocacy. When you say uh, engaging in, are you talking about vis-a-vis this shipment or yes. just in general, vis-a-vis? Yes, that's correct. Um, When um, my colleague here says that we take the position that Carmack cannot be contracted around, that is not true. Our p- point here is that with, when there is exempt carriage, the STB has already defined this as something that can be provided by contract, but we believe that 10502E says that they have to provide Carmack-compliant terms. The industry will adapt to a decision by this Court in setting the background rules, we would submit that the simpler regime and the one that the railroad had advocated in the international community was there was for there to be a U.S. statute that applies and not to allow complete deregulation through contracts. Well, they, they can't contract around liability for an event such as the one that happened here because they have to offer CARMAC-compliant terms, and if, if the — owner of the goods uh, has the option of accepting those, they can't contract around that. That's correct. And and the the point here about the forum is an important one, because Union Pacific has never thought that in these ocean bills of lading that that entitled American cargo interests to have to go to a foreign country under the Ocean Carrier's Bill of Lading uh, in order to vindicate the interests in damage to the cargo. That was an invention by K-Line in this case after UP sought to remove it under the Carmack Amendment and transfer it to New York, and UP joined that motion and has argued um, throughout that the Carmack Amendment applies. It would be um, uh, unusual, to say the least, to allow UP now to take advantage of a contractual extension of COGSA, where Section 12 of COGSA, by its plain terms, in language that is completely ignored by the other side, says COGSA stops basically at the tackle-to-tackle period and does otherwise does not affect otherwise applicable law. And there's a specific reference in Section 12 to the Harder Act and any other applicable law. And in 1936, when Congress enacted COGSA to implement the United States uh, of the Hague Rules, it was aware of the Carmack Amendment. Thank, Thank you. you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Ballinger, you have four minutes remaining. <clears throat> Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Even respondents can't really bring themselves to say that Union Pacific is the receiving carrier here. It's obviously not. They they say that somehow UP could be liable as the delivering carrier uh, under CARMAC. But, of course, if K-Line is not a rail carrier, uh, there's no receiving carrier who is obligated to issue a bill of lading under CARMAC. No one is liable under CARMAC. That is how the statute always worked. From 1906 to 1978, if the — receiving carrier was not governed by CARMAC, as it was not in any import case and in any export case except for Canada and Mexico, then CARMAC did not apply to anyone. You can't uh, parachute in midstream into the middle of a a movement uh, and impose CARMAC obligations at the midpoint, because that would turn the historic purpose of CARMAC completely upside down. It would read CARMAC as mandating the commercial problem that CARMAC was designed to solve. The point of CARMAC and and of through bills under CARMAC and COGSA is unity of responsibility under consistent terms for the whole voyage in one person. Uh, And the reason is that in order to recover from anyone, the shipper has to prove receipt of the goods in good condition uh, by that carrier. And if you break the chain of the through bill, then uh, you would have to prove, the shippers would have to prove, that Union Pacific, for instance, received the, the property in good order. And as respondents concede, all that Union Pacific gets is a sealed container. It has no idea at that point. 
And, and so the shipper would be left in a position at the end of the day. It opens the container. There's damage. No one knows where it occurs. And there's no, there's no source of law, no source of fact to figure out where the damage occurred. Um, respondents raise a, a lot of questions about some track that uh, they say K-Line owns from Long Beach to Los Angeles. None of this is in the record, uh, and it's waived at this point, Your Honor. It's, it's not actually true. That's not K-Line. It's an affiliate, and they don't provide rail transportation. It's a union specific subsidiary that provides the rail transportation. But the real point is that all of this is far too late. This case was decided on a Rule 12b3 motion to dismiss for improper venue. And the lower courts have made clear sensibly that if you are confronted with a forum selection motion to dismiss, you are required to at least come forward with any factual disputes that you think need to be resolved before the district court can grant or deny that motion. Uh, it's far too late to wait until the Supreme Court of the United States and say we, we've discovered some X number of miles. How, how, how do you get out of the, the language that says a, a rail carrier uh, uh, providing transportation shall issue a receipt for property it receives. Now, the boat, oddly enough, is a rail carrier under the definition. The, and therefore, it should have issued, since it's, you agree it's a receiving character, it should have, isu- uh, it should have issued a, a bill of lading that then, if it's within Carmack, as I've just tried to put it, uh, uh, requires it to have certain things in it that they say aren't there. Under the definitions, a rail carrier is a party providing railroad transportation. And this oh, court yeah, right. And now we see a rail carrier. No. You get the definition there, and it includes somebody who provides intermodal equipment, and you look at transportation, and transportation includes services related to that equipment. The definitions of railroad and transportation have always been defined to include all of the equipment used by a real railroad. But that doesn't mean that anyone who happens to own that equipment is also a railroad. For instance, ah, the purpose, yeah, of, right. the purpose right. of those definitions from 1906 on was to make sure that railroads couldn't evade rate regulation by overcharging for the use of a bridge that it owned. Fine. Uh, that now, just that give me how I, what I would write in the opinion that would, in mm-hmm. fact, because uh, uh, what they did here, the ship, is it took a container and put it on the train. Okay? So that's inter-service equipment. What if, what's the language that does it your way? A <clears throat> party providing uh, rail common carrier transportation, the scope of, the, of that transportation is defined to include a container. But that doesn't mean that everyone who owns a container is, per, is, meets the first part of the definition of providing railroad transportation. Otherwise, for instance, everyone who owned a bridge or a track or provided rail cars would be providing railroad transportation. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.